0: of what a strange nature is knowledge, it clings to the mind when it has once seized on it like a lichen on the rock. The weight of knowledge and the power it wields, this is one of the main dilemmas Mary Shelley offers up in her monumental novel Frankenstein. Who's the real monster in this story? What are our obligations to create and be responsible for that creation? And how can we practically submit every part of our lives to the finished work of the cross? this is let there be lit a show where we examine classic works of literature through the lens of biblical truth our passion is for fellow believers in christ to ignite their imaginations and create a sense of empathy through the art of reading as we explore both classics and cult classics join us to figure out why these works have stood the test of time Connected generations of readers and how they challenge us to live out the truth, beauty, and justice of God's kingdom. All right, welcome to Let There Be Lit. This is episode two. We are going to be talking about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein today, which is super exciting. My name is Sydney. And I'm Allie. (laughs) Give us a brief history, Allie, of why this book is so important to you. Yeah, I first read Frankenstein, I think this summer after my sophomore year of college. And I was immediately just enthralled with Mary Shelley's questions about what it means to be someone, something that is created. And what is your relationship with the creator? I was like, oh my gosh, I think Mary Shelley is a seeker. Like She's not a Christian, but I think she's asking some really tough questions. And I just wanted to explore those questions with her. I thought it was so fun the way she had that lined out. And so I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on Mary Shelley and chapter two was on Frankenstein. Chapter one was kind of a biography of her. And she's just a crazy lady who was surrounded by so many different radicals, political radicals, um, both of her parents and her husband. And she faced so much discouragement and devastation, she lost several children and she just had to keep a life like she just had to have a means of living and so she wrote books and Frankenstein was so popular right off the bat. So that was kind of my initial love with Frankenstein it has evolved into I have a life size cardboard cutout of Mary Shelley in my house. Yeah, so why, why is this book considered a classic? Why is it part of the Western canon? And so uh, one of the reasons for this is that it's way ahead of its time. You know, this is kind of like a proto-science fiction novel, which basically means that this is a science fiction novel before this was, science fiction was really a thing, right? And so it helped establish that genre and the different tenets of what those books encapsulated, right? So te- technological advancements and questions about um, ethics around that and exploration within the sciences. And it, it really does tackle a lot of monumental ethical dilemmas for creators and for readers who who pick up this book and, and try it out. It's It's becoming even more relevant with every um, generation and with every new technical technological era that has been progressing and advancing it creates an atmosphere and presents questions for people to really explore that are really timeless and I, I again I agree with you Allie I think that Mary Shelley was onto something with with writing this. There were there are some really deep philosophical, ethical, religious questions that she was bringing up and I think tie really great into the gospel. So just uh, a little more specific context about uh, when it was written and what she was responding to. So Mary Shelley published this as a response to the enlightenment. So if we think of um, kind of the rise of intellectualism and questions of nature versus nurture and how do humans learn and how do they grow? And the idea behind the enlightenment was the blank slate. I don't remember the Latin for that, but that was a popular term. And just the idea that children are a blank slate that get imparted with knowledge and we can create humans to be as good or bad depending on how we educate them. And Mary Shelley was a part of the romantics Right, these group of, of revolutionaries and countercultural at the time um, who said, No, actually, humans feel things that aren't rational. And um, sometimes our emotions aren't intellectual, but they're still valid and they still bring meaning and impart purpose and, and value to our lives. And so we see that in the text of this creature who is learning and growing tabula rasa, that's the blank slate but who is also deeply empathetic and so there's questions of what actually makes someone human is it how much they know and learn and grow intellectually philosophically or is it also a part of how they feel and how they grow emotionally and psychologically. Whether this is a recent read and not yet read book or something that you need to be brushed up on, here is the book summary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So Shelley's story opens with an Arctic bound ship coming across the frail figure of Victor Frankenstein and upon taking Victor aboard the ship's captain befriends him and Victor begins to tell his story while attempting to recover below deck. Victor recounts that as a young man, he develops an obsession for science, specifically natural philosophy. This obsession manifests itself as a project of Victor's to manufacture life in his laboratory, leading to the creation of a gruesome creature. Upon its quote unquote birth, Dr. Frankenstein is horrified by what he's created, abandons it in the laboratory and later discovers that the runaway monster is responsible for killing his brother. Ashamed of his responsibility in creating a creature capable of murder, Victor conceals who the real killer is and thus allows a family friend to be wrongfully blamed and executed for the crime. Victor attempts to escape his guilty conscience by receding further and further into his natural surroundings. Victor is suddenly confronted by his monster who recounts the rejection and violence he suffered since being abandoned by his creator. The monster gives Victor an ultimatum either create another monster as its companion or face its wrath. Though Victor initially cooperates, he rashly destroys the second monster after fearing the malice both creatures would be capable of together. This provokes Frankenstein's monster to kill Elizabeth, Victor's fiancée, on the night of their wedding. The shock of her death subsequently killing Victor's father as well. Faced with the emptiness of his life, Victor vows revenge on his monster only to face death in the cabin of the ship that rescued him. The monster, after following Victor and finding him dead, comes to the bedside of his creator. In a final confession, the monster realizes how futile his violent acts of revenge have been and retreats into the Arctic abyss to destroy himself. So we're going to go ahead and dive into some of the central themes of this book. And there are very, there are many and they are heavy. One of the biggest themes within the novel is birth and creation, what it means to create something, what it means to be a creator. So Frankenstein's monster himself begins to realize his ability to create and destroy, just as uh, Dr. Frankenstein comes to this realization at the beginning of the novel when he creates the method to create the monster. So I love this language of creation and creator. I don't know if any of our listeners are Enneagram fans, I identify as an Enneagram for and so I'm all about creativity. And what's interesting to me is Victor's motivation to create is not really creative. His motivation is kind of to push the boundaries of science, but it's not for the sake of what we would normally think of as, as creative endeavors. And I think that it's more selfish ambition than anything, right? He does so out of this desire to have this authority that's been untouched and that hasn't yet been attained. And so when he attains it, he realizes with horror that it's not what he thought it would be. You know, he creates this monster, he sees the monstrosity that it is, that it's not this beautiful, perfect being that he had probably envisioned creating, and he's appalled by it. Yeah, I I was thinking as you were sharing Victor's ambition is like you were saying, selfish, and it's to be God-like, right? And that's what kind of pushes him over the edge, where what we see in scripture is God inviting us to draw closer to him as we express the creativity that that reflects his image, right? So he's inviting us to reflect his image, and Victor's taking that to a whole new level and saying, I want to be the creator, not I, not partnering with the creator to uh, steward creation well. Right from the get-go with Dr. Frankenstein, you know, he has this ability, this curiosity that is God-given, you know, I think we're all given this curiosity. People are specifically created to be a part of uh, scientific communities and scientific vocations because they've been given that kind of spirit, that kind of gifting, that kind of mentality. But when you use it in the wrong ways or with the wrong motives, it can quickly spiral out of control. It's difficult for me to read parts where the monster has been created. And then later on, when Dr. Frankenstein encounters the monster, you hear this account of all of the ways in which the monster has been abandoned and he is created with this desire for community, right? He's created with these godly desires for interaction with a desire to fellowship with a desire to connect with humans, even though they may be different from him, but it quickly is, is tainted and spoiled by the rejection that he receives based on his own creative being. And because of that, he himself is faced with the decision of whether to create and destroy. And he's ultimately turned to the dark side. The creature is talking to Victor Frankenstein. And this is after the creature has found all of Dr. Frankenstein's journals about exactly how the creature was made. And he says, accursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? God, in pity, made man beautiful and alluring after his own image, but my form is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even from the very resemblance. Satan had his companions, fellow devils, to admire and encourage him, but I am solitary and abhorred. And just the devastating impact that rejection from the father and the creator of this creature is i think something humans understand anyone can relate to that because we've all been rejected we all know what it feels like to feel lonely what i love about this novel and what's so painful painfully beautiful to me is i wish i could take so much of the gospel back to mary shelley and i and i wish that i could you know take scripture to her and say we have an advocate with jesus you know we have someone who we are created in the image of the father and someone who cares for us, who sings over us and loves us and, and advocates for us. And I, and the story would be so different if this monster had had Victor advocate for him, even in one of those scenarios, to explain where he was coming from and what he was doing. I love that quote that you picked. I love that. There are so many of these kind of riddled throughout this book where it's like, holy moly, this is bringing up a lot of really important questions, a lot, like just the way that she writes it out. It's like, that is so eloquent. It's a thought that I've always had. It's a thought that's crossed my mind before, but the way that she was able to spill it out on the page is just amazing. So yeah, I think the main difference here is that, you know, in Genesis 1, 27 through 30, um, it's the creation mandate, right? So God created mankind in his own image in the image of God, He created them male and female, He created them. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue, to have dominion over. And when I was in ministry, we had a whole lecture on these particular verses about what it meant to have the responsibility, to have the work commissioned to us to do the work of the creation mandate, to subdue, have dominion over, fruit be fruitful, multiply. We are made in God's image and we embody his own traits such as being a creator um, such as having the creativity kind of what we had already talked about Um, and but I think the main difference here is that God despite us having seasons of feeling monstrous feeling gruesome feeling dirty and broken he will never abandon us right we always have room for forgiveness and for redemption and we still through every season embody and have the capacity to steward to live out the qualities of God himself and whether that's through technology art theology medicine homemaking um, it's all under the authority and truth of God's kingdom regardless of what season we go through however we feel the Lord is still there. The Lord will not abandon. He has given us a commission for eternity, right through throughout generations. This is this has remained the same, and He will help us in that. He will help us steward those gifts, bring out those gifts, draw those gifts out. And I think that's the one thing. As I was reading the beginning of this book with. Dr. Frankenstein basically just leaving this monster immediately after figuring out what he created. It just was so sad to me. You know, this monster was created with innocence. You know, he may have looked physically gruesome, but he was born with the same innocence that a human newborn had, right? He had this the the human innocent desires for connection for capacity and as as we're going through these different things they may overlap but yeah i, I just my heart went out to him cuz i was like man he, he he was just like dr frankenstein he was just like anyone else in this novel who wanted connection who wanted to be a part of a community and because of the inevitability of victor's greed and an obsession he was created in a way that he was never meant to be created. He was never meant to embody the kind of gruesome monstrosity that he was, despite having the internal feelings of like wanting to connect with people. Yeah, I think we really see the devastation that sin can cause to parties outside of the offending party, right? So Victor isolates himself. He goes to a secluded laboratory in the middle of nowhere and works and works and works and rejects everyone who tries to uh, reach out to him. And even in the this isolation, this act that is forbidden, his actions that shouldn't be occurring, packed everyone around him, um, even though it was done in isolation. Elizabeth gets hurt and his brother gets hurt and his father gets hurt and his friend gets hurt and the DeLacys get traumatized and the creature itself gets hurt kind of ultimately is what leads to Victor's death. And Captain Walton also has this traumatic experience hearing the entire story. I, I think it's a good example of just because you mean well, or just because you try to protect other people. If, if you're acting in sin, it's going to spill over and it's going to impact the rest of the people around you. And that's also, I think, why he needed people. Um, if he hadn't withdrawn from community, he might've had more accountability. And that's speculation, but... Yeah. And we were made for community. We were made for, and this is another major theme that comes up in the novel. Every being longs for acceptance, longs for fellowship. I don't think there is a human being on this earth that doesn't long for some, side, some sort of connection, whether that's godly connection or distorted connection in some way. And deep down, I think everybody wants to have the permission to be tested, to confess to be held accountable, um, and to have a safe place to be wholly who they are. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The quote that you said earlier, I just want to bring up another part of this. So Satan Satan had his companions, fellow devils, to admire and encourage him. But I am solitary and abhorred. This is the monster speaking to his creator. Even in the midst of wanting to connect with so many different people and having so many opportunities to do that once he's been abandoned by Dr. Frankenstein and kind of moving on and and trying to figure out life um, without him. He has all these different uh, opportunities and he's rejected at everyone. You know, whatever the monster was created for, he still shows that, despite the ugliness and despite the things that people feared about him, deep down he was just like everybody else. I think the saddest thing about this book is that Dr. Frankenstein had that and he took advantage of it. You know, he let um, the community that supported him and loved him and knew him and, and helped uh, him become the man that he was. He let a family friend take the fall for a crime um, that had been committed by his monster. And he refused to uh, use the gift of vulnerability within that community that accepted him uh, to help reform and bring you know bring about confession bring about good he took advantage of it to use people in his circle to take the blame to take the fall for his own actions and i think that's the saddest thing about that is that he had the ability connect to connect with people because physically he wasn't this monster but frankenstein's monster never had that opportunity he was his physical manifestation of who he was kind of distorted his ability to be understood from the emotional spiritual side. And that's the beautiful and infuriating irony of this novel, right? Is you these characters are two halves of the same coin. Um which is so crazy too because Victor's the one who created this extreme opposite of himself. That is another one of the traits of this novel that made it so si- makes it so significant is this balance between Victor Frankenstein and the creature. And, you know, I think we would call them foil characters where kind of opposites attract. Like that allows us to fully experience the depth of that sadness that you were describing, Sydney, of the, the most painful part of Victor's story is he had this and he chose to reject it. And the most painful part of the creature's story is he didn't even get the chance. We get to fully understand the depth of that sadness because we see them um, opposed directly to one another. Let's talk about the theme of dangerous knowledge versus the humanity of learning. So I think, Allie, why don't you go ahead and dive into what the distinction is between these two concepts? Yeah. So we already talked a little bit about how Victor Frankenstein's motives to know the most he can or to accomplish the most that he can in this field of natural philosophy, uh, basically biology, is dangerous and leads to a lot of destruction. And when when we talk about humanity of learning, I think of particularly the scenes where the creature is, he spends, I think, several months or a year or so hiding out in the woods behind a cottage on the land of this family. Um, a young couple and their aging father called the DeLacy's. And the father is blind, and so the creature is able to interact with him while the young couple is out because the father can't see him. He doesn't know what he looks like. In spending time observing this family, he learns what a happy family looks like. And I think that's what I meant by the humanity of learning is not just learning skills, but emotional intelligence, learning how to describe what you're feeling, what other people are feeling and how to use that as a tool to express yourself. Going back to the context of Shelley's response to enlightenment, this is what the romantics were really trying to push, is saying you can't just have book knowledge, you also have to have emotional intelligence, even though I don't think they called it that. But if if you don't have empathy, then are you really human? I came across... This awesome passage in Jeremiah 10. Mm -hmm. So I'll start at verses 10 through 15, and then we'll put in 23 at the end. So it says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens, but God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And then I'll skip down um, a few verses. It says, everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps, so I think this kind of this whole passage to me ties back into the dangerous knowledge part of this theme, right? Yeah. So you were talking about how Frankenstein's monster was going through the process of uh, humane learning, right? He was able to observe other humans, interact with them learning language, learning emotions, learning social connection. And then on the other side of that, we see Dr. Victor Frankenstein going through this process of discovering um, inhumane and kind of uncomfortable means of creating life and understanding how to do that. And so uh, when I read this passage, I just think, who has the power? Who, who has the authority to do do those things. God has given us the ability to explore connection, to explore emotion, to gather intelligence socially, to gather intelligence emotionally. He is the all-powerful creator. We cannot replace him. We cannot put ourselves in his position. And I, I think this passage in Jeremiah also talks about the worthlessness of idolatry. And ultimately, There is a worthlessness in the pride that he felt that I think motivated his desire to create and obtain um, knowledge that may not have been his to understand and know. Despite the innocence of the the monster when he was initially created, he was an idol to Dr. Frankenstein. He was his idol in the process of, of... figuring out a physical manifestation of this desire to create. These things in our life that we look to to make us feel important, to make us feel like we are competent or valuable. How much are we so disappointed by those things? How much do we look at the end result yes. or even the process and say, "Oh, this is this has ugliness in it or mm-hmm. this is scary or This is dangerous. It's not what I wanted. And then we try to run away from it. The impact is devastating. Um, Or maybe it's not devastating, but it's just heartbreaking. I think what Mary Shelley was getting at with this particular theme is that you can distort anything when you put yourself and your desires before the Lord. And so, whether that's with theology, whether that's with um, any kind of gifting that people are. Um, are are given, if we use that to glorify ourselves rather than to glorify the Lord, anything can become an idol, anything. It's a tricky, slippery slope when we decide to create, when we decide to study, when we decide to do anything outside of asking for the Spirit's guidance and asking Him for help because we cannot trust ourselves uh, for me that was what impacted me the most about this book so it's the theme that I like revert back to first instinctively is man if Victor had just talked to people about it more um if he if if he had just said is this a good decision and they would have said no don't do it and then he wouldn't have done it so. and then we wouldn't have the book no, you're right, right. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah. I'll I'll just read a quote from uh, towards the beginning of the book. Um, It's Victor talking about keeping a calm and peaceful mind. So he says, if the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not befitting of the human mind. I love this quote. I think he was touching on our tendency to obsess and this tendency to fixate our attentions and our minds on things that won't satisfy and that distract us from a life that we are meant to live before the face of God. And I think, again, on the, the flip side of that coin for the creature, we see him enjoying the simple pleasures. We see him able to experience the beauty and the wonder of this life that he hasn't known before. And we kind of see that when he describes um, the cottagers. He says, the gentle manners and beauty of the cottagers greatly endeared them to me. When they were unhappy, I felt depressed. When they rejoiced, I sympathized in their joys. I longed to discover the motives and feelings of these lovely creatures. He just wants to be close. He just wants intimacy and community with other beings, (laughs) with people who seem to... um, have have souls like he does yes yeah i agree and i think again it comes back to the underlying motive of both their desires to obtain some sort of knowledge right so in the monster's desire to learn he desires connection he desires fellowship in dr frankenstein's desire for dangerous knowledge his desire is for pride his desire is to have that authority which is not his to acquire and it got, it all goes back to the motivations of our hearts, right Like there's always the verse that pops up in my mind where Jesus talks about I desire mercy not sacrifice and, and just kind of speaking about the desire for connection and the desire for selflessness and sacrifice um, for the sake of others rather than the process of actually going through the motions and and doing, Um, the right things on the outside, but your heart being dirty on the inside. You see Dr. Frankenstein just looking like an average, ordinary scientist who's trying to create. But on the inside, he's been completely distorted by his pride and ambition. Mm -hmm. And then you have the monster himself, his foil, his opposite, who may be completely distorted and monstrous on the outside, but has a genuine, at least initially, has a genuine desire for connection and has a desire to connect selflessly with other people. In Romans, when it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think that takes us full circle back to creativity and being close to the creator, right? As we ask him to transform our minds, we're able to see things in a new way because he is an unlimited God who has designed this world far beyond our own imagination. So another theme that gets brought up in Frankenstein over and over again is secrecy and transparency. So Dr. Frankenstein uh, at one point says, but concealing the true reasons of this request, I clothed my desires under a guise which excited no suspicion while I urged my desire with an earnestness that easily induced my father to comply. So I mentioned at the beginning, this is really a confessional. When the creature and when Victor are finally able to confess everything to an outside party, Captain Walton, that's when we see some kind of resolution. It's not a great resolution, but there is closure. Again, there's this need for accountability, right? We can talk to God about things and we can struggle with our creator. We also need to be held accountable outside of our private hearts, 1 John 1.9 is one of these classics. Um, It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is a biblical call to practice the discipline of confession. It is a discipline for the sake of our relationships, for the sake of our own hearts. It's a humbling experience, but it's also one of the most freeing experiences that we can give ourselves and that God Himself is calling us to do. Satan wants you to think that you're alone. Satan wants you to think that it's too heavy for you to be able to tell people. But once you do it, it completely disarms the enemy and brings it out into light. Even though Victor Frankenstein is a fictional character, I am absolutely certain that there have been real embodiments of his story on this earth. And it breaks my heart to think of people not being able to know the freedom and connection that confession brings. Confession is costly. God is faithful to show up and to be present and to sustain, but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be physical, earthly consequences for the sin that you are confessing. I say that to say, I empathize and can sympathize with people who say, it's hard, it's hard. And I I hear Sydney, I hear you saying, but it's so good and it is so worth it. Um, and God is so good and so faithful and so beautiful to restore. So, we were talking about Victor's need to keep things a secret and his desire to be powerful and to be godlike and to conquer this knowledge. His ambition is what leads him to isolation. So in order to do better, to be the best, he has to remove himself and focus all of his energy on it, right? So his ambition leads him to isolate. And then that isolation leads to obsession, right? He's all alone. He has nothing else to occupy his thoughts. And that's when he loses that peace, that calm of mind that uh, Sydney read the quote from earlier. And that obsession ultimately leads to disappointment. And that disappointment is what leads him to madness, He spent so much of his life dedicated to this project, and it's backfired on him. And now he has no purpose except to continue being consumed by this creation. Disappointment in and of itself is hard to vocalize because it acknowledges some sort of failure or lack of um, realization of a dream. But mm. the fact that Vigner has a physical representation of that disappointment makes it even harder for him to confess and be transparent with the people around him. All right. So with any book that we're going to talk about on this podcast, we want to examine it the lens of truth, beauty, and justice in its application. How do we apply or redeem parts of the book within these three tenets of God's kingdom? What is the truth that uh, is shining through in this book that aligns with gospel truth? And I think one of those is that pride destroys and who are we putting in the place of God in our lives? Is it God himself or is it something else? Is it an idol? So in Psalm 115, uh, one through three, it says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so I think this touches on the reverence that we are supposed to have for the position that God has over our lives. He has the ultimate authority and our pride is our ultimate downfall. It destroys Uh, humility and dependence, as we've talked about before, uh, dependence on God, it brings peace and fulfillment. And I think another truth is that it's not good for man to be alone. We were created for fellowship. We were created for community. And I think that the fact that God has created us as people who are meant to connect with others, that we're not meant to do life alone is a huge gift. So where do we see beauty in the novel? Well, The prose is stunning. If you couldn't tell, we picked out a lot more quotes from this one, I think, than we did with the last one, just because we love the language so much. There's beautiful but also volatile descriptions of nature and the wildness of it, which is also mirroring different events in Victor's life. There's wonder and beauty found in a life that's lived in harmony, right? This is the, the perfect unity that we long for, that we really will only get in heaven. And that longing is reflected in the creature's um, observation of the DeLacy cottage family. So we're also made in God's image. And God made us and called us good. And he calls us beautiful. And he delights in us. And this is in stark contrast to Victor's horror at the pieced together um, gruesome creature that he's developed the last point of uh, our application is justice so what do we see in mary shelley's frankenstein that embodies the justice of god's kingdom so we're kind of left asking these questions at the end of the book as dr frankenstein is on his deathbed and as the monster goes off into the arctic abyss to destroy himself who really got the victory and i think neither of them really won right this brings up the question of what happens when we take justice into our own hands? Even if we feel justified in our actions, is it our responsibility to intervene? Lives have, are left in pieces in this book um, and in real life. You know, when we take life into our own hands, both um, in the case of Victor and his monster and in our own lives, we are left with a catastrophe that unravels and can affect not just our lives, but the lives of others. So, Sydney, what are you reading? What's giving you life right now? One thing that's giving me life right now is my favorite band in the whole world. 21 Pilots released a new album and it's called Scaled and Icy, and it is pretty good. I am more of a fan of their first um, major album, Vessel. It's what really got me into their music, and I just fell in love with them. I am reading. Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness. So Braving the Wilderness is about this feeling we all have, this desire to connect. How do we figure out how to belong while knowing that that's never going to happen exactly the way we want it because we live in a broken world? <laughs> so it's been hitting me hard. It's one of those where I'm like, oh, I feel so seen and loved. Um, but she, I think she's going to offer some hope too. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of Let There Be Lit. For our next episode, we're going to be tackling a classic that's taken a lot of heat lately. So as Christians, we want to read every book through the redemptive lens of the gospel. So what do we do when we read a classic that's beautifully written, but whose portrayal of certain races and themes is pretty problematic? Check out our next episode as we examine Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind.